Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about children and young adult books. Scholastic is a publishing powerhouse that's ever-present in schools today. My first grader brings home a Scholastic insert every month. Coming up, how does one of the biggest children's book publishers decide which books to market to millions of kids and their parents? We'll also speak to a Connecticut-based children's book author about how she's seen the industry change during her career. And we'll hear about efforts to promote diversity in books and among the author's illustrators who are creating them. Now, what was your favorite book when you were a kid? What new authors or new books are you reading to your children? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now, this weekend is the 25th Connecticut Children's Book Fair. The annual event is organized by the Yukon Library and Yukon Bookstore. To tell us more in studio with me is Kate Capshaw, professor of English at Yukon and incoming president of the Children's Literature Association. Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Tell me a little bit about the Children's Literature Association. This is a group, an international group of scholars, uh, largely, but it also includes librarians and teachers and a large cohort of graduate students who are studying children's literature. And its goal is to promote the serious scholarship in the field. So its goal is to um, develop ideas and publications around children's literature. And that's broadly configured as including uh, pop culture, classic texts, new media, all kinds of different materials. Uh, when we told our listeners via social media, Kate, that we're doing, uh, we were doing this show, uh, we heard a lot from a lot of uh, listeners and people on Facebook and, and Twitter talking about their favorite book when they were kids. There's so many uh, that we could talk about today. But you know, what makes a book become a classic? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think, for me, it has to do with language. So my favorite text as a young person, um, my favorite was poetry. I loved um, listening to my father recite Gwendolyn Brooks. I loved reading Langston Hughes' poetry. Um, and so the words really sort of leapt off the page and into life. And I think it's the language, but then also I think it's the creativity and the images. And so if you have a distinctive visual style like Dr. Seuss, for instance, um, or Florence and Wendell Minor, who are coming to the book fair. There's gorgeous picture books, um, and children really get immersed in those images and, and kind of lost in their imagination. I think about the classic uh, Where the Wild Things Are and Mara yes. Sendak, the illustrations that really just jump out of the page. Uh, my child literally asked me to read that to her every night. Yes, you know, yes. She, That's the book she wants, even though we have all these books in the house. That's the one she wants every night. Um, but we're curious today, too, about talking about books that um, have diverse characters ones that have become classics. Uh, we think back to uh, The Snowy Day by Ezra Jack Keats. And earlier uh, this year, uh, the U.S. Postal Service released their uh, Snowy Day Forever stamps to honor this, uh, this this classic that was written back in, in 1962. I should mention it also got a Caldecott Medal winner. You know, How did that book change uh, children's literature? Well, that book was really tremendously important, and it continues to be important to families um, and to African-American artists who see it as a kind of predecessor. So 
illustrators like uh, Jerry Pinckney and Brian Collier have, have talked about the influence of that text on their own work. Um, it's a beautiful book. I mean, its collage aesthetic is absolutely extraordinary. It's gorgeous. It's kind of a timeless book, in part because it's set in a out-of-time space where um, the child isn't located in a particular era. So it's a beautiful text. Now, if people aren't familiar with uh, the book, Peter is a little black boy. But uh, when I understand that when Ezra uh, Jack Keats uh, wrote this book, that wasn't his intent to make a point to have a right. little black boy in the book. Right. And Viking was, was um, if you look back, a little bit vexed about what to do with this text. Um, Keats had been known as an illustrator. He put forth the book. And Viking, which had always been a very progressive press, invested a lot of money in it. It was a full-color publication. But then um, when they went to market it, and KT Horning at University of Wisconsin has documented this, sometimes they advertised it as having a white child. Mm -hmm. Um, So for the School Library Journal in 1962, before it it appeared, um, Peter was a white boy. Um, And then most of the reviews when it appeared didn't mention Peter's race. It's only after it won the Caldecott Award that it became kind of... um, important as an African-American intervention. And the very famous black librarian, Augusta Baker, was on that Caldecott committee. And I think that she may have, may have supported, um, you know, its, its awarding. Now, how has all that attention on that particular book maybe overshadowed uh, the books uh, that have been written and illustrated by uh, African-Americans? And tell us about some of the research that you've done. Yeah. So in terms of that book, even in the 1960s, um, many people resisted it. Um, The Council on Interracial Books for Children, for instance, um, criticized its depiction of the mother as being too close to an Aunt Jemima stereotype because she wears a large flowery kind of house dress. Um, there was confusion about Keats's race. People assumed he was black when he was actually white. He was a Polish um, Jewish progressive writer. Um, but many black writers appreciated it. Langston Hughes appreciated the book. Ellen Terry appreciated the book. But its ascendance really has overshadowed um, writers like Ellen Terry, who was the first African-American picture book writer. Um, she was a black writer from Alabama who moved to Harlem, studied at the very important Bank Street School of Education with Lucy Sprague Mitchell and Margaret Wise Brown. And Margaret Wise Brown is best known, of course, for Goodnight Moon and Runaway Bunny. Um, and so she studied with, with those folks, and she published with Viking. And she published um, a few books with a black cartoonist, Ollie Harrington, um, in the 40s and 50s. And her most fantastic text um, is My Dog Rinty, which is 1946, and it's a photographic picture book of Harlem. So if you want to talk about who is the first black main character in a picture book, you'd have to look at Ellen Terry's books. Now, do you find these in, in, in uh, bookstores or libraries today, or where would you find this book? You might find it in a library. You might find My Dog Rinty in a library. It was reissued, actually, after a snowy day, because they're both Viking presses. It was reissued in the 60s after snowy day hit, hit the charts. Um, but even before Ellen Terry, there's been a longstanding investment in African-American children's literature from black writers. So the kingpin of, of black letters in the first part of the 20th century, Langston Hughes, his first publication was in W.B. Du Bois's The Brownies Book as a teenager. His last publication, he was working on a picture book, Black Misery, um, which was published posthumously. And his whole life he was dedicated to children's literature. Um, so, so his contributions have been kind of overlooked. And his friend, Arna Bonton, who was even more prolific as a writer, um, his contributions have been completely erased from, from cultural memory, even though his story of the Negro in 1948 won a Newbery Honor Book 
And he was disappointed that it didn't win the big prize because then it would have been on the landscape. You mentioned Terry uh, Langston Hughes. Uh, What were some of the themes that they approached in their books? So um, Ellen Terry was very much interested in showing the beauty of Harlem um, and the sophistication of the black child in Harlem. And Hughes and Bonton were capacious writers who were interested in black history, who were interested in folk stories. um, And of course, Hughes' poetry for children um, was a really prominent contribution. Um, I also would like to mention that black-run publishing houses have been issuing children's literature for decades. So the father of black history, Carter G. Woodson, you might know, he was the creator of uh, what became, became Black History Month issued through his Associated Publishers dozens of children's books that were very important to black families. And those have been also kind of erased from cultural memory. So there's a long investment in children's literature in the black community. Uh, Today in 2017, are there efforts now by schools and uh, publishers today to to find more of these, uh, not only uh, children's books that have protagonists that are children of color, but Mm -hmm getting diverse authors and illustrators? Oh, absolutely. And I know you're going to have someone who's going to speak expressly to that. Um, But I will say that I see in picture books um, a a renewed attention to the civil rights movement and um, an attention to the violence and difficulties of the civil rights movement as as opposed to the hero narratives that have structured, you know, our understanding of Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King. So, for instance, Marilyn Nelson, who's a Connecticut writer, um, has this gorgeous wreath for Emmett Till, which is a sonnet sequence about Emmett Till. And Carol Boston Weatherford, who's one of my favorite picture book writers, um, has a book called Birmingham 1963, which describes the Birmingham bombing and the four little girls. Um, so attention to that civil rights moment, um, I think, is, is really prominent in children's books right now, picture books. And then, of course, um, when we turn to topics like the Black Lives Matter movement um, in police violence, there's an, an, an interest, a vital interest, in representing children's experiences of that moment. And so most of your listeners will probably be familiar with um, Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give, which has been at the top of the bestseller list for weeks and weeks. That's right. And we're actually going to be interviewing Angie Thomas uh, on Where We Live uh, next week. So we'll be uh, happy to talk with her about her rise uh, yes. with this amazing book uh, yes. that you mentioned. Uh, before we head to break, uh, Kate, uh, we talked about um, the uh, the festival, the Children's uh, Book uh, Festival Book Fair at UConn this weekend. So when people go, are they going to be seeing... Uh, authors and illustrators from very many backgrounds. How do you bring them in? See, this is always a challenge because they are booked, right? So we we try very hard to bring in um, some of the prominent writers such as, um, uh, (coughs) excuse me, um, Jason Reynolds and Matt DeLaPena and others. Um, But we were only successful in bringing in um, writers who contended expressly with disability studies. So we have um, some writers who are are dealing with that. And we'll have texts by diverse authors at the fair, to be certain. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Kate Capshaw is in the studio. She's professor of English at UConn and incoming president of the Children's Literature Association. We're talking about children's literature today. What was your favorite kid's book? What book does your child like the best? Uh, we're coming up, we're going to talk about new books and new authors, which ones break through and become popular, and why. And we'll learn about efforts to highlight diversity. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking about children's books. Many of us can name a favorite when we were kids. They may be the same books you're reading to your children now. Uh, a listener uh, tweeted, the book Emily's Balloon by Kamako Sakai is one of her favorites. It illustrates the imagination of a young child. It doesn't hurt that her daughter's name is Emily. Also, Kalila says, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom is one of her favorites. Now, there are a lot of new authors and books to highlight. Which contemporary ones do you recommend? recommend. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We talked a little bit about how diverse are these new books coming out today. According to the Cooperative Children's Book Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, only 12 percent of new children's book authors or illustrators last year were people of color. And not even a quarter of these new books had main characters who were minorities. Now, why is this important? Joining the conversation now is Danielle Clayton, author of The Bells and the Time Tiny Pretty Things series and COO of We Need Diverse Books. Danielle, welcome to Where We Live. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell us about We Need Diverse Book, uh, how it how it started, and uh, you know what kind of uh, efforts and success have you seen? We Need Diverse Books is a nonprofit. Uh, it started in 2014 as a response to um, an all white and mostly male book con and BEA panel. Um, they had a grumpy cat, but they didn't have any people of color um, on those panels. And so Ellen O and a bunch of friends started a hashtag called We Need Diverse Books, and it went viral for several days. And we are trying to get at this issue from several different um, layers. Um, so we created programming around those things that we thought would help target um, where the problem was actually happening. So when you talk about this comprehensive approach, uh, tell us a little bit more about, I know that you give grants, there's mentorship programs, but you're also trying uh, not only to highlight uh, new talent, but to just get new faces and uh, uh, new skills and experience into the publishing world, too? Right. So we are trying to diversify from the inside and from the outside. Agents, editors, publishers, um, we give grants to up-and-coming writers. We give grants to people who want to work in publishing. We also have the Walter Award, which is for the best diverse books of a certain year, uh, working with librarians. We also launched an app so that librarians and teachers and educators can also find diverse books to answer that question that we kept mm-hmm. hearing while I was out when we were on the road at these different events. Where are the books? We created a, an app called Our Story. So we've done all of these different types of programs so that we can try to get at this issue from all of the different angles um, because it's such a multifaceted issue. It shows up in so many different arenas as I think the reason for why there aren't, why we aren't seeing as many books Mm. by and about people of color, people with disabilities, people from marginalized backgrounds, people um, that are underrepresented. Now, you're also an author of books. You have a background in literature. Uh, growing up, why do you think there's been such a gap? Um, I think that the industry has organized itself around what is mainstream and has catered to that voice. And when I say what is mainstream, I think it's catering to um, white, heterosexual, Christian, able-bodied, cisgender people. And so anything that deviates from that as the default human being um, has been seen as niche. 
and those books have been sort of put in these little groups and and sort of gone off to die in those little small small niche markets instead of opening up what it means to be human and what it means to be a hero and I think that is starting to change and stories about all kids are starting to be seen as mainstream and big and and given to everyone and I think that's the thing that sort of has been starting to shift and needed to shift and as an author um I just wanted to contribute to that uh, when you look back to the books that you enjoyed as a child, Danielle, what do you think about, like, tell us some of your favorites, and when you look back at them today, uh, what do you think about those gaps that you've identified now that you're an adult? Well, my favorites were uh, Harriet the Spy and The Phantom Tollbooth and A Wrinkle in Time mm-hmm. um, and w- Hideous, but Sweet Valley High. I wanted to be those girls. <laughs> I, liked, I liked that book, too. <laughs> yeah, I ate those up like candy. And it's because those were the books that were given to me. Those were the books that were in the classroom. And I really, I actually was fortunate. I think that as an African-American child, I came from a tradition, a literary tradition with giants. And um, I was given Walter Dean Myers and Virginia Hamilton and Mildred Taylor. But I also wished that I had books that weren't, um, that were like Sweet Valley High. And there, there just weren't those books. There were books about civil rights and slavery and um, triumph over, over oppression. And those were important books as well. But I also wanted a little magic. And I wanted a little bit of kissing. <laughs> and I think that's what I was missing um, growing up. And I think that's what I write. <laughs> as an author. This is where we live. We're talking about contemporary children's books. Uh, On the phone with me is Danielle Clayton, author of The Bells and the Tiny Pretty Things series. Also, COO of We Need Diverse Books. In studio with me, Kate Capshaw, professor of English at UConn and incoming president of the Children's Literature Association. Kate, what do you think about some of the the thoughts that Danielle shared with us about um, reflections of, like, why there was such a, has been a gap for so long? I, I think her observations are spot on. I mean, absolutely people of color and people with disabilities and and people of um, various identities have been sidelined in children's book publishing. Um, To her point about, which is a fantastic point, about um, the need for books that don't focus perhaps on problems but on, on, you know, heroes of other kinds, I really love the Ms. Marvel series, G. Willow Wilson's Ms. Marvel series because it has a Pakistani Ms. Marvel. And um, I think that that's a fantastic contribution. And I'd also say that fantasy by um, writers of color is, is really on the upswing. So Nnedi Okorafor's work, which is influenced by Nigerian um, experience, is wonderful. Cynthia Leidich-Smith, who's a Native American author, has a, now a trilogy of fantasy texts. Um, and an independent publisher, Lee and Lowe, has a whole line of multicultural um, fantastic texts. So there's magic. There is magic out there. Mm-hmm. Now, what about the role of independent presses and how they're changing uh, the landscape today? Kate? That's right. Um, as I mentioned, Lee, uh, Lee and Lowe is one of my favorite publishers because their entire mandate is multicultural um, texts, and they have a number of different imprints within that that focus on um, various identities. But there are presses that come out of particular communities. So, for instance, um, Just Us Books, which is an African-American publisher by um, founded by Cheryl Willis Hudson and Wade Hudson is a wonderful press. Cinco Puntos out of Texas um, publishes Latinx texts. Um, Thetis Books, um, which is 
a Canadian publisher, uh, focuses on indigenous authors and indigenous texts. So there, there are books out there from communities um, if, if one looks for them. Uh, joining the, the conversation now is a children's book author uh, for a number of years. She's based in Connecticut, Elise Broach. Her books include When Dinosaurs Came for Everything, The Wolf Keepers, and Masterpiece. Elise, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Tell us about how you got your start. So I have always loved writing from the time I was, you know, six or seven years old. I always loved making up poems and short stories, and I would try and write novels with my friends, trading chapters back and forth. And then I went to graduate I ended up going to college focusing on history, and I went to graduate school in history. And when I was about halfway through my dissertation, I got married and had kids, and I couldn't easily travel to do the research I needed to do to finish the dissertation. So I ended up taking a class on writing for children just at the local high school. I, it was actually um, the Wilton Adult Education Program. And I met people in the class. We formed a writing group. I also took a Patricia Riley Gifts class on writing, which was a local class in Fairfield. And it just kind of um, launched my career. We all started trying to write picture books because we imagined that that would be easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> picture books are really one of the hardest forms to write because they have to be so tight and so powerful emotionally. Um, but we, a group of us, were submitting to publishers um, because the children's publishing industry, unlike adult writing and publishing, is really still pretty open to newcomers. You don't have to have an agent. You don't have to have a special connection to get a manuscript read. Um, so we were just all sort of supporting each other, writing and um, sending off our manuscripts, getting endless rejections, which is a huge part of the process for anyone who's considered doing this. Um, and then I was lucky enough in 2000 to have um, two picture books just accepted from two different publishers from Putnam and Dial. And um, that kind of launched my career. And I feel so lucky that this is what I do. I go to schools and I write books and I get to talk about children's literature all the time, which is you know, very satisfying for me. Now, Elisa, as an author, how have you uh, responded to uh, attention on the need for diversity uh, in the characters that uh, children and young adults are, are, are reading about and, and looking at? Um, well, I just think this is such an important issue, and I'm so grateful for people like Danielle who have um, just made it their life's work to, to bring this um, kind of attention to it. And I think that our humanity is enlarged tremendously by having a diverse cast of characters, not just different ethnicities, but different faith backgrounds and different gender identities and all the things Danielle was talking about. So, uh, you know, in my own books, I will say that characters tend to come to me fully formed. So I've had characters of different backgrounds. You know, my second novel was a YA novel called Desert Crossing, and the main character was Hispanic. Um, In my most recent book, The Wolf Keepers, um, one of the two main characters is African-American or actually mixed race. But, But it wasn't as though I thought... I need to put diverse characters in my book. I mean, I'm just a huge believer in fiction reflecting the world. So I think it's more organic than that for me, but I just value so much that books with a diverse cast of characters are receiving the attention they are now. Uh, Danielle Clayton from We Need Diverse Books. She's a COO. Uh, what's your take on you know the, the track that uh, aspiring authors uh, are taking, depending on their background, on how they can get to this point of, of having a publisher be interested in their work? Well, it's really hard. Um, as Elise was talking about, I love your books. I'll have thank to stand girl you. for a second. Thank you. Danielle. Masterpiece is so wonderful. I love oh, it so much. Um, I was a librarian for many years, so very, very, very invested in your canon. Um, <laughs> okay. it, it's really difficult. The publishing industry has been sort of a good old girls club for a very long time. So it's 
really difficult. And when you come from a marginalized background and you don't have the resources and writing is a privilege, is definitely a privilege, especially when you have to work to pay the bills um, and you have to try to break in, there are so many different layers of nose and layers and mountains that you have to climb to sort of navigate this very small club and this very small industry that has so many different turns. And when you don't have someone sort of opening the door for you, there's just such, you know, you have to have the wherewithal. You have to have the chutzpah to push through. And your and your books, frankly, have to be better than everyone else's. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have, be twice as good to go half as far. It's been my experience doing this for now eight years, trying to break in and breaking in. Um, we mentioned Angie Thomas. She, uh, When I interviewed her at a, a recent event in Hartford, uh, she mentioned how she got a, a, a small grant from We yeah. Need Diverse Books. And literally she used that money to buy a new laptop. She said her laptop had been was literally was being taped together. She used the grant to get a new laptop. She kept working on the story that she had first started writing back when she was in college that became The Hate You Give. And again, as we mentioned, this book has been uh, on top of the New York Times bestsellers list for 34 weeks. It tackles really real issues. Uh, and it's it's a book that is being embraced by children of, of many colors. And can we talk a little bit about that? Like, um, you know, the fact that uh, that books can help uh, children, no matter their background, uh, get an insight in into another viewpoint, uh, another uh, a child who may live a few states or a few countries away. I think well, that's what books are supposed to do, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're mm-hmm. supposed to be mirrors and windows, as Rudine Sims Bishop said. They're supposed to be, you know, let us in, either see ourselves or let us into others' worlds. And Angie is wonderful and fantastic, and that book really does rip open your heart and rip open an issue in our country and an ugliness in our country and makes it accessible uh, for people to sort of chew on. Uh, we're right. getting... And I would just add to that that I think, you know, great fiction is always expanding the reader's experience. So um, Angie's book is not successful because it has diverse characters. It's successful because it's good literature. So I think that it's the storytelling that is really amazing there. Uh, we're getting a, a tweet from a listener uh, who says that it's frustrating for her time and time again when they get their weekly stash of books from the children's section of the library and the books have predominantly animal characters or white <laughs> characters. Uh, and if the picture book characters do reflect diversity, they're pointedly ethnic stereotypical, uh, such as an Asian character, specifically about a Chinese boy in China or a black character uh, playing jazz. And she wants to know um, when we talk not just about um, including uh, diverse faces, but doing everyday things, why that's important in books. Kate Upshaw. Capsha. Sure. Um, <clears throat> I think that um, she's absolutely right, of course. Um, there's an, a movement, an initiative called Own Voices, um, which spearheads um, texts from communities, from writers who are from the community, which they're representing. And I think that's a really important initiative just in terms of social justice, because um, so many characters of color have been authored by whites and their sidekick characters or their characters who are kind of expendable to the plot or to the crisis of the central white character. Um, and so own voices and, and really focusing on nurturing um, the, the t- profound talents of writers from communities of color, I think, is really important. You can join the conversation today as we talk about children's literature and efforts uh, to reflect diversity. Uh, the number 860-275-7266. Patty's calling from Ashford. Patty, you're on the show. 
Hi, thanks for taking my call. I was wondering if uh, if uh, diverse children's books that are being taught in the college curriculum today, and I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Kate? Sure. Um, my own course, uh, at least half the syllabus is dedicated to um, writers of color. It's a real commitment that I have, and I know that others who are teaching children's literature at UConn have. But we not only teach those books, um, we also try to bring writers to campus. So last year we brought in Dean Lewin Yang, who is the national ambassador for children's literature. He's an Asian American writer, and his most um, prominent book is American Born Chinese, which I believe won the Prince Award. But we also brought in writers like Joel Christian Gill, who's an African American graphic writer, graphic novel writer, writes about Black history, um, and. We brought in Co Booth, and he, she writes more urban, gritty novels. And of course, um, Rita Williams Garcia, we, we had her on campus. And I have to say that, for, particularly for our students who are going to become teachers largely, meeting writers, meeting writers is such a profound experience, especially when the writers are people of color, because it really opens up the doors for um, these future teachers to consider expanding their own curriculum. So we try to start in our classrooms, move it to a kind of community-based open focus on diverse writers, and hopefully inspire change both um, in the university curriculum and in, and in schools. I wanted to go back to Elise Broach, a Connecticut-based children's author. Um, how are we seeing uh, pro female protagonists uh, showing up in children's and young adult uh, books today? Um, I think there's just a much wider range of roles available to female protagonists. Um, you know, some of my favorite books from childhood, whether it was Matilda or the Little House books, they had very strong girls at the center of them. Um, Ramona, the pest, or Pippi Longstocking. But now you have characters like Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games, and these girls are doing absolutely everything that boys would be doing, and then some. So I think that's really um, exciting for children who are reading and looking for strong girl role models. Um, I was thinking back to, uh, we heard uh, Danielle talking about Sweet Valley High. I mean, I used to eat up the Nancy Drew books. Yes, and me I, too. I picked them up recently a couple years ago, and I started to reread re them, and I was like, these are awful. This <laughs> 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 is funny how that happens. It's funny how that happens, but I will say I have to put in a plug for Nancy Drew because as modest as the literary um, quality of those books are, is, um, I think Nancy Drew is such a powerful role model for girls and was for me growing up because she was always so calm, cool, and collected. I mean, she was resourceful and she always had the answers and she was not intimidated by anyone and she was doing interesting things. So I think those books had a real role in my own childhood in terms of just making me think of what was possible. Kate Capshaw? And I agree about the quality of the text. That's certainly an issue. <laughs> but um, one one really important factor is accessibility. Those books you could buy at the IGA at the end of the counter. Um, you could buy them for a few dollars. And so that's part of the um, issue, I think, with distribution of text by people of color that um, publishers need to get behind these, like profoundly need, need to circulate them and get them into libraries and classrooms and make them accessible. I'm not saying they need to be necessarily at the end of a supermarket, <laughs> but, but why not? I mean, those, those Walmart, Target, other places have space for books. Um, and so those outlets and, and really reaching the everyday child is important. When you look at uh, books that have animal characters, oftentimes they're commonly referred to as he. Correct. Yes, yes, yes. Animals are, um, I think that um, the Center for the Interracial Books um, at University of Wisconsin noted that 
animals and trucks are more prevalent than people of color in children's books. Um, and yes, the, the animals are often boys. I wanted to bring attention uh, to a, a recent story. It's gotten a lot of attention. Um, the Amazing World of Dr. Seuss's Museum, which is in Springfield. Uh, when we look at uh, the, the work that Dr. Seuss did and uh, how so many children uh, just love his books and they've helped uh, them learn to read. But when you look at uh, the man, Theodore Geisel, throughout his career, uh, you know there were times that the characters that he drew uh, were uh, based on racist stereotypes. Uh, this museum uh, was uh, called out by a few children's book authors uh, for a mural that came from the book, and to think I saw it on Mulberry Street. Uh, and there was a there was some controversy about how should a museum handle this? Should there be context, right. or should you completely get rid of this mural? The museum ended up getting rid of this mural because we're talking about children's literature today and what makes a classic and uh, what draws us in. I, I wanted to get uh, each of your take on how this kind of thing should be handled for uh, to today's children who may pick up this book or go to the museum and see this. I'll start with you, Kate. Right. So the first thing I would say is I give uh, enormous credit should be given to the writers who objected to these stereotypes, um, including Mo Willems, um, who's a very famous the author of Nuffle Buddy and the Pigeon Books, and Lisa Yee, um, that they objected to the idea that um, a stereotype of an Asian person would be on the wall, unmediated um, by any kind of um, adult or or any kind of mitigating explanation. Um, it's just put up there as, it's, as though it's a natural representation. And I would say that Seuss is a complicated figure, um, even though he did publish um, deeply racist stereotypes during World War I about Asian Americans. Um, he did, of course, publish The Sneetches and Horton Hears a Who and more socially progressive books. But even in 1950, so this is you know long after, um, uh, the Mulberry Street book, he published If I Ran the Zoo, which has egregious stereotypes of Asian Americans and of people purportedly from Africa. So he, you know, he's he's a very vexed figure. He's beloved. He did a lot of great work at the end of his life, but um, the middle period is really problematic. Um, Elise, uh, what's your take on, on how the museum should handle this and how we should talk to our kids um, if they encounter um, older books that have these problematic images? Um, well, I guess, you know, and my perspective on this is going to be influenced by my history background. Mm -hmm. I am very concerned about erasing history, so I am hugely in favor of the conversation and the context. I 100% agree with Kate that that image was incredibly problematic at the entrance to the museum where young children were going to be confronted with it, and there was no context for it. So I guess my preference would be to provide context, and I think... Um, we all learn from the complexity of our history and the complexity of individuals. So if the museum had been able to encapsulate his, Dr. Seuss's long and wending um, relationship with these images and, and the way he changed, I think it's a really heartening story of change. Um, I think that would have been great. But it does become a question of, with a certain age audience, can you really delve into the complexity of that? So I was sympathetic to everyone in that situation, I have to say. I know those authors. I think it was a very brave and important stand that they took. I understand the museum's um, dilemma with it. I feel like context would have been my preference. I'd be curious what Danielle thinks about it. Danielle Clayton from uh, We Need Diverse Books. Um, I think I have a very different uh, point of view. I think when it's, it's it, in our history in this country, it's always people of color and their pain and their bodies and what they look like that are used as teachable moments 
for white people and white children. And I think walking into a museum and seeing yellow face and seeing those caricatures of Asian people, it's a teachable moment, but a teachable moment to who? And I think about the little Asian child and the little black child walking in and seeing that and how they would feel and then seeing the plaque that says, okay, Dr. Seuss, who takes up an enormous amount of space in elementary school um, already, his canon over and over and over again. He's a giant. And seeing that he made illustrations that looks like that, like that is a, I, it's just a crisis for me. I, I'm just thinking as like when I was a small person of sure. color, yeah. it's a crisis. It's a crisis of thought. You think, oh my gosh, someone's work who I love also is a bigot and also illustrated people who look like me and people who are my friends in this really damaging way. And then that is used as a teachable moment to teach about racism. And then you as the child of color become a teachable moment and people who look like you become that. So we have to be careful about who are we actually teaching about racism and who are we privileging in that conversation? And when museums do things like that, a mural that's huge, um, well, it was a bad choice for the mural, yeah. but then do you expunge all his illustrations? And as Kate pointed out, there are many. I mean, do you just expunge all of those from the record of Dr. Seuss's work? It's, it's Absolutely hard. not. Yeah. Absolutely not. You tell the truth. You tell the truth. But it's about how you frame it yeah. and how you present mm-hmm. it, um, who you are trying to teach this to, right? Because we cater to a certain child and a certain voice. Um, I think it's all about framing, and I think his, uh, historians and museums can do a, a better job yeah, at sure. giving a full comprehensive sort of look at someone's body of work and their pitfalls as humans and their human frailty. I think it's about presentation. I think yeah. a mural is a bad start. Absolutely. That, that's like walking into a museum and seeing um, here's an effigy or a lynching. Let's talk. Like, let's not do that. <laughs> let's try a different approach to um, presenting the dark side of history. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On the phone with us, Danielle Clayton, author of the Bells and Tiny Pretty Things series, CEO of We Need Diverse Books, Elise Broach, Connecticut-based children's author, and also in studio with us, Kate Capshaw, professor of English at UConn. Today we're talking about children's literature, and coming up after the break, Scholastic gets millions of books into the hands of students each year. How do they choose which books to highlight? We'll find out, and you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Libraries play an important role connecting children to books and fostering a love for reading. You can also credit publishing giant Scholastic for reinforcing the importance of reading and having books in the home. School children bring Scholastic pamphlets home each month, and PTOs hold those book fairs inside schools. Now, how does Scholastic choose which books to market to students and their families? On the phone with us now is Nancy Mercado, editorial director at Scholastic. Nancy, welcome to where we live. Hi there. I'm delighted to be here. I understand you've partnered with We Need Diverse Books. Tell us about that relationship and and why that partnership happened. Yeah, that partnership has been really incredible. We have um, flyers with them for the elementary schools and a little bit older. 
um, several flyers per year, um, and they really help us to sort of select the best of the best of the year um, and really making sure that that flyer presents every, you know, possibility um, and that everyone sees themselves represented. It's through the Scholastic Book Clubs. I understand that you've been working in children's publishing for almost uh, two decades. So when you look at manuscripts, what are you looking at? Looking at it's it's a competitive field. What stands above the rest? We heard Danielle Clayton saying earlier that you have to be um, your writing has to be so much better than others. I'm just curious what you're looking at. Yeah, for me, it really is about looking to see what will make sort of a lasting contribution to the canon of children's literature and looking for the gaps, looking to see what haven't we published yet and really, you know, sort of keeping that in mind. Um, but but it really comes back always to me to to making making a book that will make that lasting contribution. I was looking at my uh, son's scholastic pamphlet the, the other week, and I noticed that it was divided in three parts. Uh, you had something related to first and second graders, and there was uh, more uh, geared towards uh, the, the time of the year. And then there was another uh, insert in the back that just was diverse books. And I was wondering why they were divided that way. The, that the diverse books were divided? In the separate pamphlet, yes. Oh, I see. Um, I think for for us, what we really try and do is make sure that across the board in all of our catalogs that there's a diverse representation throughout everything. So, so the We Need Diverse Books flyer specifically is focused on diverse representation, but really that representation goes into all of our other catalogs. So, I mean, the books that we're acquiring from other publishers and the books that we're publishing at Scholastic are used in clubs and fairs and across all of the mm-hmm. Across all of the clubs. What about? I understand you're an editor for Latin X. What's your perspective coming from that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the things you're talking about book clubs, and one one book club that I have to mention is the Club Leo Flyer, mm-hmm. which offers books in Spanish and uh, bilingual books, and that's particularly important to me. We have a whole division, Scholastic and Español, that publishes books in Spanish, and those are just really terrific. They they translate a huge number of books every year. Um, so for me, that's been that's been incredibly important and very gratifying, you know, about working at Scholastic. Um, and then in terms of Latinx in publishing, that is really a group of people in the industry, within the industry, who have come together and really trying to advocate for more um, Latinx people working in publishing and helping to <clears throat> to really kind of make sure that the um, you know that we're uplifting the voices, uh, the Latinx voices that um, are already writing in the community. What are the popular books today, Nancy? Uh, Magic Treehouse, uh, Harry Potter. Yeah, I mean, you know, we did this. The Scholastic did a kids and family reading report. We um, we just did that, our recent one, and in that, you know, we talk about what are the, some of the most famous, you know, what are the most popular books that parents are looking at for their kids. And it really is a lot of the sort of tried and true things. Um, the I Survived books that I edit are, are on there, which always makes me happy. And, um, and but, you know, we have the Magic School, uh, Magic Treehouse, rather. And I was going to say Magic School Bus, but that's a whole different series. Um, but we, you know, we there's there's a lot of the same, same things that you've seen before the Harry Potter um, books. Um, show up every year. Uh, Danielle and Elise, uh, what are what are some books that new uh, authors, illustrators that people should be paying attention to? I'll start with you, Danielle. Um, in 
Well, that's this is such a hard question. <laughs> oh my god, you asked the librarian what's his favorite books that you should be paying attention to. Um, uh, Jason Reynolds' Long Way Down just came out. Uh, Nick Stone's Dear Martin just came out. These are wonderful books that I really love in the YA scene. Um, for middle grade, oh my gosh, this is so hard. <laughs> um, you might have to circle back to me because. I'm blinking out on everything. <laughs> There's so many books that are coming out. I'll go to Elise Brooch. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I mean, again, I'm just so impressed by the richness and the innovation that is happening in children's literature right now. I mean, I am very interested in these meta picture books, the well-known ones like B.J. Novak, um, the it's the what is it the book without pictures mm-hmm. um but the books that are kind of about storytelling that still seem to engage kids i think that's very interesting there's a lot of ya that i think is breaking new ground in terms of like telling a story backwards or um e lockhart also known as emily jenkins she does a great job with these books that start in one place and with kind of a an assumed truth, we are liars, and then they work backwards to tell you what really happened. I mean, there's really interesting stuff going on in all sorts of different areas. Um, uh, Kate Capshaw is in studio with us from UConn. Um, my students are, are really thirsty for texts that respond to the current moment. And recently, Tony Medina came out with a graphic novel, I Am Alfonso Jones, which is um, a response to police violence. And my students are so excited to read this text. And I would also say E.B. Zaboy's American Street, which is about a Haitian-American girl who who comes to the city and um, has to deal with violence and then also sort of assimilation into American culture has also been a really exciting contribution recently. I think a former children's librarian is on the phone with us, Barbara from Rocky Hill. Barbara, you're on the show. Thank you for taking my call. And I'm so glad here Danielle mentioned Wrinkle in Time because it's my total favorite. But I really wanted to talk about One Gorilla by Anthony Brown because it's one of these books that if you first look at it, you think it's an animal accounting book. But it's much deeper than that. It goes to really the family of man and how we're all connected. And it's a book I would highly recommend for anybody, even a two-year-old can sit. And it's just one of these books that has layers and layers of meaning. I was curious, uh, before we um, end the show, uh, you know, how has self-publishing and Amazon impacted the landscape, or is it more to, is it more affecting more of the adult books out there, Kate Capshaw? One of my favorite writers is Zeta Elliott, and she's a self-published author largely, and she writes wonderful picture books as well as um, young adult texts like A Wish um, After Midnight, which is a combination of historical fiction and fantasy. I think she's fantastic. She hustles. She is working very hard um, to, to stay um, present. And I give her all the credit in the world because her, her work is amazing and she's made substantial contributions to the field. Uh, Nancy uh, is with us, Nancy Mercado, editorial director at Scholastic. I was asking our guests how uh, self-publishing has impacted uh, the landscape, and I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of of finding certain talent uh, when uh, people are able to go that route and, and market their books on Amazon. You know, I think, you know, self-publishing is definitely a terrific option. I think that we in the publishing industry are looking at people who are self-publishing and we're certainly keeping an eye out on, you know, who who is out there that 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 might want to enter into traditional publishing as well. Uh, Kate Capshaw, again, is professor of English at UConn, incoming president of the Children's Literature Association. Uh, We have a a caller that wants to know how, as incoming president, you're going to be able to work with issues of diversity in children's literature. Thank you for that question. Uh, We have a dedicated committee 
at the CHLA on diversity issues, and we recently created a grant to support uh, critics who are working on texts by people of color and um, texts about disability. And so we're hoping by transforming the scholarship, we'll be able to transform uh, professors' awareness of these texts and ability to teach them in the classroom. Uh, Nancy from Scholastic, I was curious. Uh, we heard from uh, Danielle and Elise about uh, their careers and what their advice is to aspiring authors. But since you're at Scholastic, what would you say to someone listening who thinks they've got a great idea for a story and they want to take that next step? Sure, sure. Um, I think, you know, the first thing is to know that your story matters. Um, and then I, I also would say that, you know, one of the things we found in our, in our uh, Kids and Family Reading Report is that kids want books that make them laugh and kids want books that help them imagine other people and other people's lives. So to me, it's really about focusing on the craft of your writing and making sure that that is your goal, that, that improving your craft at every turn and taking workshops and, and doing things like that and working on those books that will make kids laugh and that will help kids imagine, you know, what it's like to be somebody else. Uh, books like The Book with No Pictures by B.J. Novak, with, that's been uh, mentioned. Uh, that's one that uh, really makes uh, you chuckle, whether you're a first grader or a parent trying to read that book. So, again, thank you, uh, Nancy Mercado, Editorial Director at Scholastic. We appreciate your insight. Thank you. Also, Elise Broach, a Connecticut-based children's author. Uh, some of her books include Masterpiece and The Wolf Keepers. Elise, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. This was great. And Danielle Clayton, author of The Bells and the Tiny Pretty Things series and CEO of We Need Diverse Books. Uh, Danielle, thank you. Thank you. Kate Capshaw, again, the, the Children's Book Fair is going to be at UConn. Uh, what, where can listeners go to get more information? Bookfair.uconn.edu. It's completely free Saturday and Sunday, 10 to 4. Come on over. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Our intern is Evan Sobel. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. Go to wmpr.org slash where we live. For more about the show, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend. <laughs>